0: Greetings to your listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of The Remnant Podcast, brought to you by Dispatch Media and thedispatch.com. Go to thedispatch.com to sign up for newsletters, to find out more stuff about other podcasts, and to generally become a better person. And I should say, today's show is brought to you by Ernest. More about them in a little bit. So today we have uh, a, a bit of a treat um, from one perspective. <laughs>
1: uh, Breaks into uh, laughter. <laughs> yeah, so
0: there'll be a lot of nervous laughter on this one. Uh Uh, A former colleague, he's now an emeritus at AEI, but uh, still a a dear and close friend, Um, Charles Murray has uh, a new feel-good, make-friends kind of book out called uh, Human Diversity, the Biology of Gender, Race, and Class. And um, it's... Pretty much exactly the 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 book. Lots of people were worried he would write. <laughs> um, so, uh, Charles, welcome to the Remnant.
1: It's good to be back. Yeah.
0: So, um, uh, just for listeners, I always try to bring listeners in along about what sort of my my my, uh, my script notes are. I've uh, gotten a bunch of grief from people that I wasn't hard enough on Jake Tapper, and then now I'm getting a bunch of grief from people about how I wasn't hard enough on Brett Bear. Um, that's really not how I try to do these things. Those guys were doing me favors coming on. And if I got bogged down in CNN's coverage of the Russia probe or, uh, my well known or at least well inferred views about some of the opinion stuff at Fox news, we wouldn't have been able to talk about anything else. And so I wanted to keep it conversational and all the rest. We now have this book, which is going to get a lot of controversy. Um, It may even break through the noise of impeachment. And so I'm going to be a a little more, in good faith, pointed in my discussion with Charles about some of it. Uh, But I fully cop to the fact that Charles and I are friends. And um, so if you're expecting me to rake them over the coals in a way that uh, people would want if they wanted to see Charles flayed or punished or anything like that, not only am I not willing to do it, I'm really not able to do it. Um, So, uh, Charles, human diversity, why did you write the book?
1: (laughs) You know, I've been thinking about that question ever since I started writing the book, and there are lots of different answers. Basically, you've got a couple of things going on. One is that recent discoveries in genetics and neuroscience have provided Social scientists like me with brand new tools we've never had before that have potential for answering questions that are really important that we've never been able to answer. It's a really exciting time to be a social scientist, or it should be an exciting time to be a social scientist because we're on the cusp of a revolution. Uh, So that's one of the motives. I wanted to describe this, this progress. But the other side of that is My social science colleagues, generally speaking, are scared stiff of biology. Mm -hmm. And uh, biology is at the center of these new tools. And why are they scared stiff of biology? Because we have been told by the elite media and elite universities that uh, gender is a social construct, Mm -hmm. that race is a social construct, that class is a function of privilege. And all of these things are raise problems that can be fixed by the right institutional arrangements and socially just policies. Well, that is BS. Um, and just to wrap up why I wanted to do it, I'm tired of people ignoring the fact that gender is partly a biological construct. Mm -hmm. The Y chromosome, possessed by men and not by women, has lots of different complex effects on personality, uh, abilities, and social behavior. And the story since the sequencing of the genome is that, in fact, human populations are genetically distinctive in ways that correspond to self-identified race and ethnicity And third, we've known for a long, long time that success in life depends in part on traits that um, have a large heritable component. So there is a biological component to success in life. And and as we will get into all of this, listeners will find I'm not dropping any bombshells. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be telling you outrageous things. Uh, I'm I'm simply saying this is really interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's also stuff we need to know because right now, we are flying blind in 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 dealing with all sorts of social science issues.
0: Okay, I want obviously I want to return to all of that, but we should, for the benefit of listeners, have you just sort of walk through what the book is actually about? Sure. You know, what are your main What are your main assertions? What are your, I, mean, I can read if if you want the ten propositions, um, but uh, you know, best book, best question you can get on a book tour. What's your book about?
1: <laughs> and the answer is. I'm trying to identify really important stuff that we don't have to argue about anymore. It, when I say we don't have to argue about it anymore, people are going to argue about it, of course. But the science uh, on a lot of issues is far enough along that we should be starting the conversation from a set of things that, uh, that we can agree upon. And so what I did was I've identified 10 propositions that uh, – in my view, are things we don't have to argue about anymore. Um, Well, I will go ahead and list the 10 because maybe that will be a way of talking to listeners about the fact there aren't bombshells, that rather it's much more measured than that. Proposition one Sex differences in personality are consistent worldwide and tend to widen in more gender egalitarian cultures. That, by the way, is really counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, men and women are more different in Sweden than they are in Senegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- Nobody expected that, but it's, it's well-documented now. On average, females worldwide have advantages in verbal ability and social cognition, while males have advantages in visual-spatial abilities and the extremes of mathematical abilities. Mm-hmm. I don't know of anybody who knows anything about uh, the literature on this who's going to find that outrageous. On average, women worldwide are more attracted to vocation centered on people and men to vocation centered on things. Again, the experts are awfully close to a consensus on this. Uh, finally, now here's the one which is in many ways most interesting. Many sex differences in the brain are coordinate with sex differences in personality, abilities, and social behavior. Notice the word coordinate. Yeah, explain width. that one. A coordinate with is they're consistent with what we would expect if mm-hmm. we were looking at a phenomenological world in which women are more attracted to vocations uh, involving people, and men are attracted to vocations involving things. There, there are aspects of the brain mm-hmm. which say, "Well, yeah, that all hangs together." That's the, those are the ones on gender. Mm-hmm. The ones on race, I'm afraid everybody's going to be really disappointed because these are so anodyne human populations are genetically distinctive in ways that correspond to self-identified race and ethnicity which is as simple as saying uh, folks you sent your 100 bucks into 23 and me mm-hmm. and it comes back saying you're 87% northern european and 13% mediterranean how do you suppose they did that mm-hmm. <laughs> except through genetically the next one on race is uh, evolutionary selection pressure since humans left africa has been extensive and mo- mostly local uh, it's not the case that we haven't had time to evolve since we left Africa. Continental populations in di- – uh, this, this is <laughs> – Jonah, you're saying, is Charles trying to cover his ass when he for- crafted the wording on this? And you're right, yeah. I was, mm-hmm. because I'm prepared to de- go to the wall to defend this statement, but precisely the way I worded it. Here we go. Continental population differences in variants associated with personality, abilities, and social behavior are common. That is the one that uh, we might end up talking about a little bit more in the course of the day. Now that these are the ones on uh, on heritability and class, the shared environment usually plays a minor role in explaining personality, abilities, and social behavior. Parents hate to hear that. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much true class structure is importantly based on abilities on differences in abilities that have a substantial genetic component and 10 here's one i think probably will attract the most violent denunciations outside interventions are inherently constrained in the effects they can have on personality abilities and social behavior so those are the 10 propositions if if we could all sort of agree yeah those seem to be objectively true, the dialogue about a lot of important issues would be much much uh, more productive.
0: Okay, so a few questions. Um, first of all, when it comes to things like uh, climate change, I tend to be pretty harsh on the phrase settled science, right? Because the whole point of science is to unsettle what we think is true now and um and when people invoke the scientific community's consensus on things, well, that's the whole, you know, if you read Thomas Kuhn, it's the whole point is that one person comes along and he questions the paradigm or she questions the paradigm and overturns the apple cart of whether it's the Copernican worldview or um, uh, heliocentrism, you know, go down a long list of things. Um, So when you, when you, invoke the consensus among scientists right now, isn't that a similar appeal to authority? Aren't you Aren't you smuggling something in there?
1: Well, I spend 500 pages documenting those uh, assertions, so uh-huh. uh, it's not as if I... Right, no,
0: my point isn't that you're wrong about the consensus. My point is why should we invest the consensus with such authority that says they're always going to be right in a straight-line projection in the
1: future? F- f- fair question, and let's just stick with climate uh, change as... As a as a puzzle here sure. that all of us have to deal with, I'm reasonably sophisticated in my ability to anal- uh, read and and understand technical literature. I haven't the least idea what the real story is on climate change. You know, I don't know who to trust. I I, I don't I don't have any solid ground in which I say okay. I, I accept this as something we don't have to argue about anymore. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that such things don't exist. Uh, they're, they're, and the thing is, it's hard to identify who's saying them. But but in, in some cases, we know enough to say, well, could this be overturned? And the answer is, it's really hard to see how. Mm-hmm. And let me take as an example of, of that – The statement that uh, human populations are genetically distinctive uh, in ways that correspond to self-identified ethnicity. So this has a history I won't tell in detail, but essentially people have been working on this for the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. And before the genome was sequenced, they had to deal with very small sets of genetic information. But even then, it appeared that uh, you had this correspondence between genetics and self-identified Uh, race and ethnicity. Then the genome was sequenced and they were able to look at hundreds of I will introduce one bit of technical jargon, Mm -hmm. SNPs, because Mm -hmm. I'll be using this. SNPs refer to single nucleotide polymorphisms, which is those bits of the DNA that can take on more than one form. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're the things that account for all the variation in human beings. So people had hundreds of SNPs, and they were still seeing these patterns. Now they have hundreds and thousands and millions of SNPs that they are using to analyze this, and you keep coming up with the same thing. So... So the question is, is anybody going to figure out any way to look at the human genome which doesn't show this correspondence between self-identified ethnicity and genetic uh, characteristics? And the answer is, it's really hard to see how, because the analyses now are, are entering the entire genome virtually into, uh, in, into the conclusion. So is it absolutely impossible that these statements uh, could be overturned? Uh, no, it isn't. In each case, do we have a very solid body of evidence documenting it? Yes, we do.
0: Um, Okay, so second sort of theoretical framework question. You say that gender and race um, aren't social constructs.
1: I most certainly do not. Uh, Are there Things that the concept of gender has taken on that have nothing to do with biological differences, absolutely. Okay. Uh, in terms of race, you have an enormous amount of cultural baggage that comes along with that word because, in fact, people have ascribed to race all sorts of characteristics we now know are not true. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, you know, in the 19th century and well into the 20th century, well, almost to the end of the 20th century, it was taken for granted that human beings had evolved in isolation since the exodus from Africa. Uh, so that you had what we now know as Europeans that went to European uh, Europe uh, 80,000 years ago, and the same with East Asia, and, and so forth. Well, that's not true. Uh, we now know a wonderful book by David Reich, I recommend to everyone, it's just fascinating, using ancient DNA, Mm -hmm. uh, has shown the way that over the last uh, tens of thousands of years there have been repeated resettlements of all of these areas. And so the old notion of of races evolving separately in isolation from each other, that's just plain wrong. All of the ways in which race became, (laughs) caused a civil war. I mean, uh, the baggage is huge. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason... I join uh, when I'm talking about genetics in the scientific uh, consensus now, don't use the word race. Mm-hmm. And so, what people use instead is ancestral population. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, that people whose ancestry is sub Saharan Africa constitute a group. Within sub Saharan Africa, there are subpopulations that are. There are a lot of ethnicities. A lot of, th- sub- a lot of ethnicities. And I'm very happy using that those that terminology instead of race, precisely because race is so much a social construct.
0: Um, all right. So, but so this is one of my, you know, one of the reasons I have a podcast is to give a voice to my various pet peeves and grievances. Um, I despise a lot of the 23andMe or Ancestry.com commercials. I've written about this before. There's one in particular. That, uh, there's one 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 theme that they've run a bunch of different ads like this where they have the one I'm th- remembering is they have a guy who starts the commercial wearing I think like a traditional Scottish kilt and um and has bagpipes and he says all my life I was told I was Scottish I went to local dances and we did Scottish dances and and um and that was who I thought I was and then he says, then I went to 23andMe or Ancestry.com. I can't remember which one. I don't want to pillory the wrong company. But, and I found out I was mostly German. So now I'm a German. And he's, they cut to him now wearing, like, lederhosen and clogs. And they do, it with, with, they do it with African-Americans. They do it with all sorts of people where they are buying. It is an anti-fundamental, to me, it's almost fundamentally anti-enlightenment thing where I get that we have certain genetic baggage that we come with. But culture matters a lot in a lot of ways. And if you grew up with your family and your friends doing Scottish dances and eating haggis and all of that kind of stuff, the idea that your genes compel you to throw it all away and and embrace your true Aryan-Germanic nature, that's horrifying to me. I agree. Um, And so – you mentioned when you what made me think about this though is when you mentioned 23 me and says 87% this and 23% Mediterranean or 83% northern <laughs> – whatever the numbers was, right? Um, like my friend Catherine Lopez from National Review, um, she gets all of this stuff, uh, you know, all this mail from people about how they want her like on their letterhead or be part of their group because they think she's Hispanic. But her family goes back to like the black Irish 500 years in Ireland or something like that. So these 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 notions that because your people came from a certain place, if there is all of this, for want of a less obvious euphemism, if there all, is all of this cross-pollinization in the human genetic record, why do we take for granted that certain ancestral populations are this static thing to begin with anyway?
1: Uh, I'm I'm, <clears throat> I'm trying to process the end of the question. Okay,
0: so you you brought up that we didn't that human populations didn't grow up in isolation, mm-hmm. and um, I think that's ob- objectively true. Um, so when people say, "Oh, they're they're Sicilian, so they're hot tempered," right? That's yep, an old yep. cliche. The Sicilians were invaded by moors by you know by greeks by romans there are all sorts of genetic cross population there why do we consider that gotcha that population to be a static quality you know a, a, a value for that variable when in fact it's it's like turtles all the way down there okay. have
1: been these cross migrations going back a million years in a lot of ways a surprising thing that's been found is the empirical fact that even though there's been all of this cross-pollination, that there remains a remarkable degree of differentiation. Now, at this point, I'm going to ask listeners to uh, go with me a little bit into the statistical weeds, okay? Mm -hmm. There's no way around it. Let's take a a given trait, Mm -hmm. such as schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. for example. We now have nine hundred and some different SNPs that we've ident- we using the word loosely, have identified as being statistically associated with schizophrenia, and so that's a fair that's a fair sample size. If you take Italians, Brits, Finns, uh, and Europeans from Utah, mm-hmm. and compare them on uh, those nine hundred some SNPs for schizophrenia, the correlations among those groups are about 0.98, which is a huge correlation. Right. And if you visualize a scatter plot of uh, the differences in, in well,
0: the just to, so the the because we've promised listeners for a long time there would be no math on this podcast, but. Uh, when you say point 0.98 is a huge correlation, a correlation of one is what? It's perfect. It's perfect. It's okay.
1: per- yes, that means everybody's exactly the same so on it's this. Ninety eight. So ninety eight says if you know what the frequency of such and such an allele is with schizophrenia in Italians, you can make a real good guess about what it's going to be in Utah, mm-hmm. Northern Europeans. The same thing is true of subpopulations within Africa. Uh, And the same thing is true of subpopulations within East Asia. All the correlations for just about any trait you can name are 0.97, 0.98, 0.99. Then you take those same 900-some SNPs for schizophrenia and you compare uh, East Asians with Europeans. Mm -hmm. Well, the correlation there is no longer 0.98. It's about Mm 0.80. Now... That’s still a big correlation. But if you visualize a comparison of the of these bits of genetic information, there are lots and lots of differences at this point, even with a correlation of 0.8, where one of these variants has a frequency of 0.8 among East Asians and it only has a frequency of 0.2 among Europeans. Now I'm not, I'm not going to go on much longer with like this, but mm-hmm. but I'm trying to get across this. Geneticists staring at differentiation of uh, of genes on important traits are not looking at race as a social construct. They are looking at a situation where different populations from different continents have way different profiles mm-hmm. in these things. Can you then assume that this is all going to balance out in the wash? That's really implausible, mm-hmm. Um and at, at this point, I probably pushed the math as far as I can in this kind of format. Uh-huh. But I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to get across the fact that well, let's go back to David Reich, mm-hmm. uh, who is this extremely well-respected geneticist at Harvard, who wrote a book called "Who Are Where, We and How Did We Get Here." Uh, he's the, probably the world's foremost authority on ancient DNA, and he had a uh, an op-ed in the New York Times, and he also said the same thing in his book, which says, look, we have to stop insisting that there can be no genetic differences among different populations. Mm. Uh, We don't need to worry that there are going to be huge differences. there's, there's, There's nothing scary and awful out there, but this insistence that there can be no differences is just, it runs the danger of digging ourselves into a corner. And when it turns out that there are some differences, people are going to run screaming in horror from the room, and also go way overboard in their interpretation of what these findings are.
0: So, um, why don't we switch gears for a second. Uh, Since you think, if I'm reading, if I'm interpreting you correctly, that you are pulling back from a lot of the exaggerations and caricatures that are that are have accumulated into the social construct stuff and just saying here's what the science actually tells us, yeah. right? So what do I say to my Haitian sister-in-law or to Tom Sowell or to Jason Riley or, um, or you know my other African-American friends whose names listeners will not recognize um, about how they should interpret a book like this. How should they feel about this turn towards um, using DNA and science to to convey the impression that, that, that these differences between ra- races or ancestral homelands and stuff make other, some people seem less than other people on some in some way.
1: No, the reaction that they will, can legitimately have to everything that's going to come out is, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> look, we don't know much yet about what the specific findings are going to be on specific traits. We're way at the beginning, you know, at the early part of, of that. But it's very unlikely we're going to see these huge differences that can be added up and say, oh, this group is better than that group. Because you're talking about very complicated bundles of traits mm-hmm. that go into making up a human being. They don't lend themselves to characterizations of superior, inferior. Um, so th- that's, that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Relax. Calm down, I would say to everybody. There, there's no horror show uh, around the corner on this. another way I'd appeal to it is to say, okay, forget about genes for a minute. A lot of the people who are horrified by the prospect of genetic differences in in, uh, ethnicities are cosmopolitan people. They have colleagues from around the world. They've traveled around the world. They have no problem whatsoever in recognizing that Chinese think and behave somewhat differently from Saudi Arabians. Saudi Arabians are somewhat different from Senegalese. Uh, Norwegians are somewhat (laughs) different from Senegalese, and uh, Italians are somewhat different from Norwegians. And if you get down to it, Northern Italians are somewhat different than Southern Italians. The differences themselves in personality and abilities and uh, social behavior, they exist. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows they exist. And we live with them. And an awful lot of time, we enjoy them. You know, viva la difference kind of thing. Well, when we add genes to the mix, in a lot of cases, we're going to say, well, a lot of those things that we already observe, <laughs> without worrying about them, uh, have some genetic component, be it large or small. <laughs> when you look at it that way, you're not going to be living in a different world once the genetic story is known.
0: Let's talk about a specific trait, the propensity for violence, right? Uh, do, you, do you think there's a strong genetic uh, factor there or no?
1: Is there a strong genetic factor? Yes. Okay. Uh, that, that much seems uh, – our knowledge of heritability says yes, but uh, do we know that there are population differences in, uh, in propensity for violence? No, we do not know that yet. Now, are there po- are there differences between males and females right. in propensity to violence that have a biological origin? I'm I'm tempted to say, duh. Right. But, but in fact, yeah. Uh, there actually,
0: are. from my brief perusal of the relevant data and research, you can say duh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I always joke about this, but I saw a great doc. You know, MSNBC on Saturdays used to run basically documentaries about prisons. And I've always been fascinated by prisons. I think they're, um, which is why I want to get this guy David Scobar. Uh, I'm going to mess up his last name, but there's a guy, there's a researcher out in California. I think he's, um who just does stuff about prisons. And there's all sorts of great Mansur Olson type observations because it's a state of nature where it has to self organize. But anyway, they did this thing about the the uh, I think it was Rikers, where they would show the male population where they were. Snapping on the rubber gloves to search for anything that could conceivably be turned into a weapon. You know, rolled up newspaper or magazines, sharpened toothbrushes, anything imaginable. And um, and total shakedowns of their cells. And then they cut to the women's prison. And they're allowed to have irons. <laughs> 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 and, you know, and hot plates. <laughs> and all guys, they're just, they're just, there's some differences there. Um, uh, but, okay, so, but on on violence, what I'm trying to tease out here is that um, I've become more and more of uh, a cultural, a culture guy and an institutional guy, um, in terms of my primary explanations for things. I think it was you who once pointed out to me, um, you know, if you take some village in England where there hasn't been a lot of in-migration of any kind, a hundred years ago, you could leave your bike out side of the store while you went in to get something and it would be there when you come back a hundred years later, same popular, same gen X, but your bike is going to be gone. Right. So culture plays an enormous role in this. There are, if you go, when I was researching for uh, my book, suicide of the West now out in paperback, um, uh, if you, if you go back and you look at like the Napoleon Chagnon stuff and the, the, um, uh, or, or the Steven Pinker stuff about the prevalence of violence in the past. Um, violence was vastly more acceptable in human populations everywhere around the world. Rape, vastly more acceptable around the world for hundreds of thousands of years. It's now less acceptable. Our genes haven't changed, right? Mm-hmm. So, how do? You, where do you find? What is your heuristic for figuring out where the trade-offs between culture and and, and genetics are on this kind of thing?
1: I I like to use the concept of milieu. Uh Uh, You know, mostly these days uh, psychologists talk about the environment as the shared environment being within the family and the non-shared environment being sort of everything else plus measurement area and genetics. I think in a way that gets it wrong. Uh, I think that it's much more productive to think about uh, about the difference between uh, genetics and then happenstance in the environment and milieu in the environment. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, We're all, our lives are vastly affected by happenstance. You know, any of us who is the good fortune as we do to be happily married, we just sort of thank our lucky stars that uh, everything fell into place and we accidentally ran into this perfect woman. so happenstance has a huge role, but it sort of evens out over the long run on, on some kinds of things. So if you ask yourself, would my personality or my abilities be much different if I had grown up in another kind of family? And and let's say that we'll put aside traumatic child abuse mm-hmm. or something. But if you would had just sort of another kind of environment – would you? With Steve Jobs, by the fact he grew up in uh, a working-class family that wasn't nearly as smart as he was, was he much changed in his personality and abilities by that experience? And my own sense of myself, my sense about Steve Jobs, and, and for that matter, you, is that in personality and abilities, you'd be an awful lot like you are right now, despite the role of happenstance. But if you're talking about social behavior, the role of milieu, which is kind of the water in which you swim, is phenomenal. So that you mentioned violence going Mm -hmm. down. Take a look at the change in non-marital births. (laughs) A couple of percent Mm -hmm. among uh, non-Hispanic whites uh, through uh, the first half of the 20th century, and it's now up to about 30%. Mm -hmm. That's culture. Mm -hmm. That's milieu. Age at which people get married. Religiosity. Religiosity. All sorts of very important social behaviors are profoundly affected by milieu way in ways that are far more powerful than genes.
0: So it, just, just for my own clarification, def- give me a good working definition of personality.
1: Oh, I suppose that um, – And I don't mean like <clears throat> – the five-factor uh, uh, model?
0: Ugly blind date. She's got a great personality. <laughs> um. <laughs>
1: there, there have been lots of different ways of characterize personality. but Basically, you can talk about a relatively few traits that seem to uh, explain an awful lot of the variation. The five-factor model is the best known, which has openness is one, conscientiousness is another, extroversion is, a, is another, agreeableness mm-hmm. is another, and the last one has been labeled neuroticism. Which seems to me kind of odd. Uh, the other four are kind of positive. Yeah, Neuroticism is definitely not positive. And so a lot of psychologists have substituted the other end of the spectrum, emotional stability mm-hmm. for neuroticism. So <clears throat> you take those five things and actually you can characterize a lot of the differences among people just using those five. But you can also talk about things like grit, which has you know, mm-hmm. become very popular. And the, the notion that uh, what's really important in success is, is grit, which is passion combined with perseverance. Okay, that's important too. With what the people call emotional intelligence, uh, which involves self-control and other kinds of... Yeah, those are important as well. So So let's put it this way. <clears throat> if I had been adopted at birth by your parents, Mm -hmm. and you had been adopted at birth by my parents, I would not be as extroverted as you are, (laughs) and you would not be as introverted as I am. Uh, You really, I don't think it would have had a damn bit of difference, made a damn bit of difference.
0: I I, I just personally, I'm I'm still skeptical about a lot of that, just intuitively. I'm I'm not going to get into a bidding war about the science on this, but you know the birth order stuff seems really significant to me nah. um you see and you know, i see it in my friends who have middle kids you know the the middle kid is it brings i mean i'm i'm not making an epigenetics argument right i'm just saying that the middle kid has to fight more at the dinner table to be heard is showing off that seems really common to me a lot of these like, like the the I think I've told you this story. I took one of those Myers-Briggs like tests in college and I had the results were only were in line with only 4% of the population who take the test.
1: And um, why am I not surprised?
0: And it basically had two uh, it was a line two lines on the graph and they were symmetrically going in opposite directions from each other. Something like that. That's the way I remember it at least. And I asked the guy like what the hell? Why do I have this like rare thing? And he explained to me, and again, I, I don't put a lot of stake in the Myers-Briggs stuff, but, um, but he explained to me that uh, you usually see this result from children of divorce whose both parents want to be the primary parent or intact married couples where neither parent has ceded the ground of authority about how to raise the kids, which nailed me to a T. Um, my mom and my dad have very different personalities, and um, and they both saw themselves as sort of the primary parent. And um, and anyway, the funny story about it is that the the guy said the, the 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 great thing about this this personality chart or type is that you basically stay the same person regardless of environmental stresses. So on a good day and on a bad day, you're basically the same person. I don't know that that's true, but at the time, that sounded awesome. And I remember calling my dad and said, Dad, I took this fascinating test, and it says that, you know, I'm a rock. I'm, I'm, I'm reliable. People can count on me not to sort of, you know, cave under the pressure and to be the same kind of person in all situations. And my dad, who almost never cursed, long pause, says, that's great, unless you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, <and laughs> anyway, my, 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 my point is I... I Intuitively, I still feel. I know you have the twin studies in your pocket, and you always can play that card. But I still intuitively feel that that institutions, culture, these kinds of things, don't just change the incentive structure for how we behave. They do have effects on our personality. And you're saying that the science. Uh, no, is not I, there?
1: I, I want to back off because when you said something about birth order, and I said, nah. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I was thinking in terms of birth order and IQ, mm-hmm. uh, which is that that's been pretty much debunked. However, then you talked about first and second children. Well, I have two pairs of first and second children because I've had two marriages. And and my wife, Catherine, and I often laugh about the, the same pattern between the older child and the younger child yeah. in both pair, p- pairs of cases. That's completely anecdotal. But – I look at that, and it sort of hangs together, and I'm actually with you in looking at the twin studies, and you're right, I have them in my pocket, and I can mm. cite chapter and verse and say, uh, but uh, there's there's got to be more wiggle room here than than the twin studies. Suggest maybe maybe this is a way to try to to reconcile it. Um, That you can acknowledge of all the things that happen to a personality and so forth, you can have a great many of them be not much affected by how you were brought up. Mm -hmm. But you can have a few of them in an individual case be quite affected, even though the statistics for a large sample indicate that ordinarily this would be the case. There's a lot of randomness in the world that goes on. The the example I use in the book of the effect of milieu versus the effect of genes is to imagine that we cloned, using ancient DNA, the exact clones of Michelangelo, Shakespeare, and Mozart. Mm-hmm. I am willing to bet that they respectably become in our age, great visual artist, great writer, and great composer. But if we go with Mozart, he's not going to compose the Jupiter. He's not going to compose Ein Klein and Nock music. He is going to compose some spectacular pop music of right. some kind. And and, uh, and that's milieu. So, so I'm willing to believe that genes have a huge effect on the kinds of things they will be able to do in the world, but what those things are are hugely affected by milieu.
0: So Charles, hold on a second. I know this is an earnest conversation, but you know what else is earnest? Earnest. Do you have student loans? Refinancing them with earnest could save you money or lower your monthly payment, and it only takes two minutes to check your rate online. If you are still paying the same rate you were when you graduated, odds are you could reduce your monthly payment and save big. Even if you have refinanced before, with today's low rate environment, most people can save by refinancing again. Earnest is the easiest way to refinance your student loans, saving you time and money. Checking your new rate is fast and easy. To start, complete a few questions online. It takes only about two minutes and you'll get a personalized rate estimate all without affecting your credit score. If you qualify earnest offers customizable loan terms and no fees you can even combine private and federal loans imagine having one single monthly payment with one low rate already refinanced the loan no problem you can still be eligible to lower your interest rate again plus the internet loves earnest customer service they're rated 9.4 out of 10 on Trustpilot. So you'll always be able to get the support you need. So starting today, our listeners get a $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. That's $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. Go to earnest.com slash dingo today. E-A-R-N-E-S-T dot com slash dingo terms and conditions apply okay so let's switch gears a little bit um you're right it's i think it probably is counterintuitive that the differences between the sexes and in modern industrialized societies is greater than in, in traditional societies mm-hmm. although it makes sense to me for my reasons but uh why don't you explain why you think that is
1: Point number one is people are arguing about this. This is not at all settled. What is settled is there have been multiple studies. We're talking about replicated, thoroughly replicated findings, which are in personality characteristics. They are wider between men and women in the more developed countries mm-hmm. and narrower in the less developed. Uh, there which are,
0: suggests that culture matters, right? <laughs> uh,
1: well, yeah, culture interacts with genetic differences. Right. And so this is an ex post facto explanation on my part, uh, but it seems to make sense to me. Suppose that you are an extroverted Saudi woman. Well, your expression of that extroversion is going to be severely constrained by the the social expectations of how a Saudi woman should behave. Mm. Uh, suppose you're an extroverted Swedish woman, although sounds a little improbable, yeah. but uh, suppose you are. You're way freer than the Saudi woman to express that extroversion. In the case of something like in less developed countries, the proportion of women who go into STEM, science, technology, Mm. engineering, math, is higher than in developed countries. Why is that? Well, here we do have some pretty persuasive explanations. Uh, some of the better-paying jobs in the less-developed countries are concentrated in those technical occupations. Mm -hmm. And regardless of what you'd prefer to do, the prudent thing for you to do if you're a woman in a family that needs to have a a wage earner is to go into one of those occupations. If you're a Swedish woman who has the ability to do well in the STEM uh, uh, field but who much prefers um, studying the fine arts, you're much freer. Right. To uh, take economic risks and to go into a less remunerative field, you're able, you're better able to express what your underlying predispositions are.
0: You're free. You're, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah maybe, you're free. I mean, that's. Yeah. Th- I mean, this is a point Megan Mcardle makes very well. You know, she's a statistical outlier, and she's really good at STEM. She mm-hmm. she was a computer programmer, and it turned out that because she had options to do other things. She chose not to do something she didn't love, um, and more prosperous, free societies uh, allow more people to find the thing that they love to do. There's no guarantee, right? But the pursuit of happiness is an individual yep. right. Yep. I and mean, this is one. The only reason I'm, I'm bringing it up is because, you know, uh, Patrick Denine. There are a lot of these. Uh, the the first things crowd. A lot of these people were throwing a lot of cold water on liberal democratic capitalism. They're saying that it's it's not providing the kind of meeting and sense of social solidarity that human beings crave and desire. And as you know this stuff better than I do from coming apart, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, The decay of institutions, the decay of the family, the decay of local communities is a real serious problem. It does not necessarily flow from that that the the solution is to get rid of liberal democratic capitalism because at the end of the day, liberal democratic capitalism lets more people figure out how they want to live than any other system. And so in a free society, you're going to have if, – if women are more attracted to work with people, they are going to be able to choose the careers that they want to choose to work with people. But in a constrained society or a, or a traditional society – they're told you can only be a school teacher until you get married and then you have to stay home. Mm-hmm. And it, one of my great frustrations this is a very Arthur Brooksian point. One of my great frustrations is how it, falls, it always seems to fall to curmudgeonly conservatives like us to make the case for the kind of society that, that women and, and, and minorities and all sorts of people should want to live in. One where you actually are not constrained by outside forces to tell you this is the kind of person you have to be.
1: I, I let me tell you my f- own favorite bit of data, a bit of findings that I had in the book, and this comes from the study of mathematically precocious youth, which has been going on for forty years now. There was this guy came named Julian Stanley who, back in the nineteen seventies, had this brilliant idea for identifying gifted kids. He gave thirteen-year-olds the SAT, I mean the college entrance SAT. So if you get an eight hundred. Or even if you get a 750 at age 13 in in either the verbal or the math, that's a way of discriminating people who are up in the top percentile and fraction. So he had all these kids that were then brought into the program, and they followed a lot of them up. So now the earliest cohorts are in their late 40s, and they've been uh, interviewed and followed and all the rest of that. (laughs) And here's what I just love about it. You're talking about a group of talented kids who can do any career they want mm. in, in just terms of intellectual uh, horsepower, including the women. The, w- the women in the, that study can be mathematicians if they want, no problem. The ratio of males who go into STEM and females who go into STEM in this incredibly talented group is about the same as it is in the population at large. Mm. But here's the other finding people tend to go <clears throat> with the thing they're strongest in uh, and and with males there's a big difference in this so that men who are really really talented in math and visual spatial skills a lot of times don't have a lot of ability in verbal mm-hmm. they don't have any social skills guess what stem is the only game in town for that right An awful lot of these women who are supremely talented in STEM are also supremely talented in things that can make them a Wall Street lawyer, Mm -hmm. uh, a CEO, uh, uh, an English major. Like Megan McArdle or a Washington Post (laughs) columnist. Exactly. And they have choices. Really, really talented women. I'm talking about averages here. They are more likely to be good in both Mm -hmm. than the guys are.
0: Right. So, I mean, I guess we should go through some of the sort of the basic findings. The general rule of thumb is there are more male geniuses and there are more male morons, right? And that women tend to be – the average woman is smarter than the average guy. Is that right?
1: On social cognition, Uh uh, yes. On uh, verbal skills, yes, slightly.
0: Um, Men tend to be better at like –
1: Visual spatial skills. Visual
0: spatial skills, right? Because – they evolved to throw a lot more spears. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's,
1: that's, that's the, the obvious plausible
0: explanation. Yeah, Although a friend of mine thinks that the fact that men can aim their pee explains <laughs> all of this. <laughs> you know, I like people who think outside the box. <laughs> um, so, all right, so, the, the um, there's not a lot, you explain why, but there's not a lot of evolutionary psychology in the book. No right. Why is that? And what is evolutionary psychology?
1: Evolutionary psychology is the is, is says well. Why is it the guys have higher visual spatial skills? Because uh, back in the Pleistocene, they had to be able to hit edible mammals mm-hmm. uh, at a distance with a rock or a spear. They That's had a to great be,
0: name for a band, by the way. Edible mammals. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they had to be able to find their way back home after a hunting trip of several days by mm. by top of so so. Evolutionary psychology is a fascinating discipline. It has been very successfully demonized. Mm -hmm. So you have all these people say, this is just so stories. You have something we observe today, and you reason backwards to how it happened. It's just all, to use uh, Joe Biden's phrase, malarkey. Mm -hmm. And they have been way more successful in making that case than they should have been. So I decided if I put evolutionary psychology in there, uh, people are going to spend their time debunking that, mm-hmm. and not come to grips with the actual differences that we observe among us. In terms of the thing you were you were alluding to about more male geniuses mm-hmm. and more, I put that in an appendix. Mm-hmm. Uh, the evidence on greater male variance, it's not a hypothesis anymore. It is, it, it's thoroughly established as a physiological difference that if that is true of. The the brain and it's true of physique and everything else. The reason I put it in an appendix is because it's not an interesting general male female difference. Uh, look, if somebody has an IQ or, or visual spatial skills that put them in the top one out of one hundred thousand, and there are somewhat more males there than there are females. I, as a male, cannot make as a characterization of males. Hey, that's cool. I'm a male, mm-hmm. because we're talking about such weird outliers that it's not an interesting general difference to mm-hmm. the population. Um,
0: but there is a general difference, isn't there? Like you remember you telling me about how they do these experiments where you tilt a glass of water. Mm why don't you explain that? The
1: the example of greater visual spatial skills is a test called the water level test, whereby the student is asked to look at a drawing of a glass of water with the water being perfectly flat in it, and then you're shown a tilted glass, and the student's supposed to draw a line showing what the water will look like in the tilted glass. It's really hard to believe this, but it's been replicated over and over, which is way more women than men don't put the right answer in, which is the glass is still going to be, you know, horizontal to, relative to the earth. And as, as a woman who wrote a, uh, up this literature said, it's really hard to figure out why college-educated women seem to have so much trouble with this. It's, it's a kind of primitive visual spatial difference. But see, that is a general difference between uh, men and women. The mathematical genius who can ma- win a Fields Medal... Well, there have been more males than females, and there probably always will be because of the greater male variance and the superior visual-spatial skills. (laughs) I can't win a Fields Medal. Mm -hmm. You can't win a Fields Medal. This is a true statement. (laughs) You know, only one in a million people can win a Fields Medal. I don't consider that an interesting male-female difference.
0: Right. And so on the the also generalizable, the also general difference between men and women, that women can recognize – Emotional states from smaller cues more quickly and more reliably. Right? There's that test where they just look at the eyes on different pictures and they can guess the or they can surmise the emotional state of the person better than men can.
1: Yes, this is a, a reading the mind and the eyes test, and I had a I had a long discussion of that in an earlier draft of the book. I finally took it out because it falls in the category of a really cool test, and I wish that there were more results on it mm-hmm. but generally speaking I took the test by the way and I concentrated I tried hard mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> my score was exactly average for males which is a lower mean than the, the mean for females yeah and and uh, and and so this is not women being more. Uh, you know, sensitive in, in, in any kind of squishy soft way. This is women who are able to process visual cues about another person's internal state better than guys can. On average, mm-hmm. overlapping distributions, all those qualifications.
0: Um, yeah, so is it, one of the things I just thought, sort of think is fascinating about the brain in general. It's an evolutionary psychology point more than what you're getting at in that um there's a big chunk of the brain. I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that there's a big chunk of the brain dedicated to recognizing faces, like and reading faces. And faces are really important in an evolutionary standpoint, right? Because you have to be able to judge violence very quickly. Um, but the centers of the brain that control speech and all of that come much later. <laughs> and so, I immediately know the difference. I know. I immediately know what that that sort of, Matt Damon looks different than Paul Newman, but I'll be damned if I can pithily explain it to you in terms of just their faces, right? I mean, oh, he knows a little, you know, it just, it doesn't come to us as naturally. And I do think that that's one of the sort of fascinating things. And so do you have a theory, or is, what is the prevailing explanation why women are better at reading faces than, than men are on average?
1: I don't think that I can give a general explanation of that. Can I pick up something else to give uh, listeners a a sense of what we're learning about? Sure. And this is not in the realm of settled science. This is really cool, exploratory stuff. I don't know about you, but my wife can remember our child's third birthday party in vivid detail and... Me, not at all.
0: I can't remember your child's third birthday party. (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and it's true of all sorts of autobiographical things Mm -hmm. about our lives together for the last 35 years. She has simply an incredibly richer memory of all the things gone on than I have. Well, an interesting difference in the way that males and females encode uh, memory and emotions are and since I have a left-right problem, I hope I... Well, let's just say the amygdala, mm-hmm. which is involved in, in, in encoding emotionally-laden stuff, um, you have two sides to the amygdala, just as you have two sides to almost every uh, region in the brain. And guys encode the memory on one side of the amygdala and tend to, uh, to encode the emotional affect of it on the other side. And women, it appears, from the preliminary research, tend to encode both in the same side, which is very consistent with the fact that, look, if your memory is is augmented by the uh, mem- the emotional affect associated with it, probably you're going to hang on to that longer mm-hmm. than somebody who's divorced those two things. This is the kind of stuff that is still in the realm of, isn't that interesting? We aren't sure about that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it hangs together with things that we see in everyday life all the time.
0: So I find this extremely reassuring because I attributed my inability to remember some of these things to scotch. (laughs) <laughs> and if it's if i was just born that way it's much better <laughs> yeah
1: yeah there's there's some uh, there's some comfort in and you also think maybe i don't love my kids as much as yeah. as my wife does and the rest of that yeah it lets you off the hook for a lot of that stuff
0: um all right so let's move to the last thing which i have i mean I, we we could do this for a long time but we've gone a while um uh class right mm-hmm. you Make the case that heritable heritable characteristics, genetics, play a big role in class and 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 social stratification. Why don't you make your sure playing your thesis first?
1: <clears throat> Think of the things that go into success in life, and it's a bunch of things. It is uh, IQ is a helpful thing to have for a lot of kinds of professions, but so is self control. So is conscientiousness. Uh, so is perseverance, so is grit, all these things. So that as we look around the people, uh, look the people around us who have become successful, you can see the role that a lot of these qualities have played in making them successful and rich and famous and important. Uh, all of the things I just mentioned have a heritable component. The, the heritability of each of these is not huge, but it's not insignificant either. And so you take all those things together, does it determine an individual's success? Not really. It has an effect on it. Uh, you're very lucky if you're a statistician and you can explain more than a quarter of the variance based on these factors. But the analogy is with why casinos make millions of dollars. Their statistical edge on any single bet at the craps table or the roulette wheel is actually quite small, Mm -hmm. but you have millions of those bets. Similarly, you have a, a modest role, let's say, of heritable traits in determining success so that that for any one individual does not amount to genetic determinism. Does it mean that you have different personality profiles, different intellectual profiles, across socioeconomic classes yes it does um and it is significant it's not and of course here's the kicker it 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 may have been getting larger Mm. so that it was in 1900 you had all sorts of of uh people in working class occupations who were brilliant intellectually who loved opera who (laughs) Because an awful lot of the brilliant people in society were working at working-class occupations, not to mention women Mm -hmm. who were virtually all in the home. And so insofar as we have had the opening up of society over the last century, an awful lot higher proportion of people who have those talents have been moved into the occupations that have the highest socioeconomic prestige. This was the story of The Bell Curve, right. uh, published 25, 26 years ago. It's it's And it was the subject of a syllogism that Dick Ernstine came up with in 1972 about uh, the, the role of heritability in social classes. Talk about something that I don't think is really open to debate. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's open to debate anymore.
0: Right, so this is... I mean, what's interesting to me about this, before I went on my little love letter to liberal democratic capitalism, is it lets people find the thing that they're best suited for, right? Um, this is the downside, Yep. right? That when you remove all of the arbitrary barriers, um, you, um, you actually have a much more efficient sorting of things, right? You, you
1: substitute one kind of unfairness for another. That's right. Right. So you have in 1900 you had these brilliant people working as housewives or as, uh, as as carpenters who could have become theoretical physicists or or great novelists and that was unfair that their circumstances had artificially prevented them from realizing their potential. Now we have a situation where we have an economy and a society <clears throat> that is tailor-made for people with a particular skill set. And that particular mental skill set goes under the general heading of IQ. And if you have that, you have a lot better shot at a lot of desirable places in society than somebody who is unlucky. And I want to tell you, nobody gets an IQ of 135 by trying hard. They should be on their knees every night thanking whatever for having been so lucky in the genetic lottery. So you now have, you know, liberals have to come to terms with that kind of unfairness, uh, and so do conservatives uh, have to come to, to, to terms with that kind of unfairness because it's real and it's not gonna go away. Right. So um, I think it's
0: intuitively, historically, and scientifically indisputable to me that say in 1600 there were a great many idiots and goofballs who were dukes and lords and princes and kings, right? Because the heritability of privilege truly was heritable and had nothing to do with your genes. It had to do with the fact that your ancient ancestor won some battle somewhere and uh, and then because of this notion of noble bloodlines, you just inherited things and it had nothing to do with your merit, right? Yep. That kind of gets raised. That's one of the things that I think, the Founding Fathers don't get enough credit for is getting rid of titles of nobility and all of that. That was an incredibly radical thing to do in human history. I talk about that in my book. Um, at the same time, there is it's sort of like as before you push back when I mischaracterize your position saying that race and gender aren't social constructs, there are social constructs that have like barnacles stuck to the core scientific part of it, right, or the core factual part of it, there is still an enormous amount of inherited privilege in the culture, right? I mean, we look at the um, the College admission scandal recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who can hire p- folks who are really great at Photoshop to put their kids into a water polo team that doesn't exist, right, <laughs> or hire consultants to do that kind of stuff, or simply bribe universities for their ne'er-do-well uh, sons or daughters to get into school, that is, that There's is, a lot of that going around. There's a lot of that mm. stuff, right? And this is one of my great complaints about, and we've talked about this before, is the takeaway I take from all of this kind of stuff is, as a, as a general rule for policymakers, is that complexity is a subsidy, right? That the more complex you make society, the more you're rewarding people with either the, the social capital, the cognitive capital, capital the economic capital, to be able to work around those rules. Um, and so, but it is, it is when I look at all the problems that we have, it does not seem obvious to me that the, the efficiencies you're asserting on our system are as, as uh, obvious as you do. I mean, it does seem to me that from, there are, I don't want to get into a big thing about, structural racism and white supremacy and, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff but there are still advantages baked into the system and mm-hmm. one of the constants of human nature is that those in power try to circle the wagons and and pull up the ladder behind them and have nim- and nimbyism as a social phenomenon phenomena is a real thing. Yeah
1: and I, and I want to uh complete a thought that might have left a wrong impression. I said, if you were lucky enough to have a certain skill set, and I referred to IQ, I may have left the impression that I think that uh, high IQ has any relationship to virtue, merit, character, or for that matter, (laughs) being an interesting person to know. And I want to set the record straight on this. I am extremely upset by the conflation of IQ with those qualities, mm. and uh, the, the the kinds of you know segregation, cognitive segregation we have now has only accentuated the the way in which people who are smart think they're better than yeah. other people now, and they and, and that it, is a problem
0: on the left and the
1: right. Yes, uh, on the left and the right and furthermore they have no idea about how little that matters in deciding whether the person next to you is somebody you respect or not high iq does not mean you are living a richer more meaningful life than somebody whose iq is 20 points lower than yours are it's we we have created a society in which we have artificially raised a few qualities to a place that they don't deserve mm-hmm. And one of the main thrusts of the conclusion of my book is as is, is is impassioned as I can get about we have to destroy this false – this false value that we place upon those, uh, those qualities. Um, yeah, I mean like when I hear Donald Trump
0: talk about how all of his successes come from his good genes – it makes my skin crawl, right? And when I hear Don Trump Jr., which he does all the time, he must be doing it intentionally to troll people. Talking about how he wishes he had a famous name like Hunter Biden that he could make money <laughs> off of. Um, he can't be doing that
1: unselfconsciously.
0: Well, but I, I but I'll look, I honestly, I, 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 think he may be that dumb, so I'm not sure. Um, but you, you look at the 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 tendency of elites to change the rules of the game to reward what they're good at or what they have, that is a universal tendency over time. I'm a big public choice guy about this kind of thing. And what worries me about this conflation of high IQ with virtue is You know, I've just done a couple podcasts, one with David Brooks and one with Ross Douthat, because I just can't get enough New York Times columnists. And um, uh, in a time where religion is no longer the primary answer to the fundamental questions that we have, we fall back on other sources of identity, like the 23andMe stuff, where, oh, my DNA says I'm German, I must act like a German. that we're going to get more and more of this. That we're going to have. The, it's sort of. It's what Hayek would call scientism, where we're looking to science to find the, um, you know, the sources of, of of values and morals. And that's that really actually does worry me.
1: Yeah, we need to reconstruct a moral vocabulary for talking about human differences because we used to have one that worked really well in the Judeo-Christian tradition, and that is we are all equal in God's eyes. And actually, thats if you step back and you imagine a deity worthy of the name who thinks that Jonah, he prefers to somebody who has an IQ 20 points lower than Jonah, it's absolutely idiotic. Right? We are all equal in God's eyes. We are all equal in human dignity um, and human worth. You take away religion, and people start to lose the ability to be humble on the basis of first principles. Mm -hmm. And I think another characteristic of human beings is to not be humble just instinctively. Mm -hmm. Uh, That when people see that they have more money, they have more status. Uh, they have more of anything than someone else, it's real easy for human beings to fall into, oh, I'm better than that other person.
0: I mean, you f- just, I and mean, we can close on this, but you feel it when you're lucky enough to draw first class on a plane and you see the people going back into coach and <laughs> you look at them like they're the Irish who dance on the tables on the Titanic. You're like, oh, look at those scum going past me when you just, you know, it's total happenstance, you know. Um Anyway, I probably shouldn't have ended on that. No, but. I
1: think that's perfect because you know what? It is so silly to have that reaction, and we all do.
0: Right, and you have to say, "Wait a second! I'm a bad person for indulging this
1: thought." Yeah, that's know? right.
0: That's so. Right. All right, Charles Murray, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, good luck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I should mention to our listeners that you announced to me that you were working on your draft of your denunciation on me way last July yeah. and so I expect by this time it must glow you know
0: well I mean when when asked about this podcast I'm going to talk about how my dogs were held hostage I have a picture of your wife with a gun to pippa's head um, forcing me to do this podcast and um, and it's and 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 you know Bill Murphy, It's great to have you on here because I have no idea who you are.